Tip Today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. 1800 The text and WhatsApp is 083 311 Lots coming in about Joe, as you can imagine. Joe was brilliant, it says here. What about herself and Johnny Luby for a laugh? Now, there would be something to, uh, to contemplate indeed. Uh, Fran, when you had nothing, you didn't expect anything. You were glad to get anything at all. And that's uh, making reference to my chat there with uh, Joe and lots of people congratulating her and saying that she brightens up one day and all of that and so say all of us. Now it's time for our weekly global politics segment. Glad to be joined in the studio as usual by politics and economics student Thomas Conway. Good morning to you Thomas. Good morning Fran. Uh, good to see you um, uh, today. Uh, Brexit, Northern Ireland uh, and update I suppose in some ways. The current state of, of play and of course news this morning as well Thomas. Yeah it hasn't gone away you no. know and it's not that long ago since Brexit was utterly dominating the news agenda. We had all the furore around the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, sort of faded from view somewhat in in recent years, in the past couple of months, but it has re-emerged. You're absolutely right. The Northern Ireland Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris, announcing this morning that he would defer uh, the elections until probably in an attempt to reconvene the Stormont Assembly to uh, to put a little bit of pressure on the politicians up there. But we've had an interesting course of events over the past couple of weeks. The week before last, we had UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. He had his first official meeting with Antishok Michal Martin at the British-Irish Ministerial Council. Now, that's a kind of a cooperative institution established yes. by the Good Friday Agreement. And we can't forget... Sunak is a committed Brexiteer. He has championed the benefits of Brexit, but he does seem open to compromise. And the sentiment from that meeting seemed fairly positive on both counts, from both Michal's perspective and from Sunak's perspective. But I think the best thing to do is to recall what the Northern Ireland Protocol actually is. Yeah, well, you do, because I always believe, Thomas, there's confusion over over that. What what exactly is There it? is, and, and it's understandable, because yes. it's quite complex. So, look, the Northern Ireland Protocol, it's the component of the post-Brexit trade deal, which was designed to preserve a frictionless border on the island of Ireland. So, designed to avoid a hard border. And what it does is, it keeps... Northern Ireland inside the European single market, the EU single market. So it must still enforce certain checks on goods coming into Northern Ireland. That's where the issue arises with, we hear about this border in the Irish Sea. Yes. So like in essence, the Northern Ireland is still technically part of the European Union from a regulatory perspective. But of course, on a broader level, it's not. It's part of the UK. And that has really infuriated unionists in the mm. north. Read a terrific piece by Vincent Carney, RT's Northern editor, this morning, looking at loyalists and their attitudes towards the Northern Ireland Protocol. And it is creating a fair bit of angst in that community. And a lot of us here can't understand that because it appears that they have the best of both worlds. They still have a foot in the European camp and obviously they have a foot in, in uh, UK and Brexit. It certainly does, but I suppose the fear amongst unionists is that there is a detachment from the United Kingdom as a whole. And that, I suppose, you know, that goes to the heart of unionism. Uh, obviously, you know, they feel they're part of the UK and Northern Ireland is part of the UK. 
But I think it it uh, is related to I think growing concerns and maybe demographics uh, shifts in the north, electoral shifts as well. If we look back to May and the assembly in election, Sinn mm. Féin becoming the largest party with 29% of the vote, 27 seats. They eclipsed the DUP, who, who, who got 25 seats. Now, it was the Alliance Party who really made waves, who were, who were the big headline grabbers so after that. that's the that. centrist. That's uh, the centrist there, party. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, that is probably refreshing from a Northern Irish perspective because we see kind of a new brand of politics emerging, new attitudes emerging amongst young people. But we have to remember, all this is after against the backdrop of kind of shifting demographics in the north. So look, if we look at the census figures, I was going through them, last year's census, census 2021, yes. Catholics now outnumber Protestants in Northern Ireland. Now by a narrow margin, 45.7% to 43.4%. So it is quite slim. But you do have a large proportion of young people, 18 to 24 year olds, a total of 15%, sorry, 57% of them, who say they favour a united Ireland, which I think is very interesting. Right, but the overall stat for favouring a united Ireland in the north is what? No, it, it is. It, there is still a unionist majority. So, forty-one percent of the population would vote yes to the prospect of a united Ireland. Forty-eight percent would opt to remain in the UK. Quite interesting as well as an add-on to that, what the attitude in the Republic is. Yes. Because the Irish Times had a poll last year, 62% say they would favour a united Ireland, but 79% say that they would not be willing to make financial sacrifices for it. So, right. in other wanting words... wanting your cake and eating it. Yeah, it? yeah, they, they would favour it in theory, but not yes. necessarily in practice. Mm. But I suppose looking at this broader picture, like, it all emanated from Brexit, from yes. the 2016 referendum. And we've had numerous statistics, numerous high-profile public figures. Mark Kearney, the former governor of the Bank of England, recently expressed the view that Brexit has essentially compounded the cost of living crisis in the UK. It's compounded many of their mm. economic woes. No, that's not accepted from the Tories. No, it yeah. certainly isn't. Yeah. And I suppose you had a faction of hardline Brexiteers within the Tory party. Interesting to see some of those formerly hardline Brexiteers, the likes of Steve Baker, the MP who now has a role in Northern Ireland, has perhaps softened his approach. So maybe there is an understanding now that in order for the UK to thrive and to to overcome the economic obstacles it faces, it needs a coherent post-Brexit trade agreement with the EU. And at the moment, the Northern Ireland is the main issue, the Northern Ireland Protocol, rather, is the main issue getting in the way of that. It's going to be very interesting, isn't it, uh, as time rolls by where this is concerned. Do you think, by the way, do you think they'll be back in Stormont uh, or, or will there be an election? Well, I think there think? is increasing pressure on them and we have to... But the we, DUP don't do pressure, you know. They seem to trundle on their own way. They, they certainly don't, but I suppose they will be wary of the fact that another election in Northern Ireland is likely to yield a very similar outcome. Yeah. And we're likely to see the same results, if not a you know, a greater surge in support for, for Sinn Féin and the Alliance. So Geoffrey Donaldson will be acutely aware of that yes. uh, when he plans his next move. Is there any way that that veto or whatever you want to call it can be taken away that a party can actually stall Stormont? Well, I think that goes to the heart of the Good Friday Agreement yes. and, and some of the agreements. And maybe, you know, the question has to be asked. Obviously, you know, it was a fantastic agreement in the sense that it preserved peace but it failed to foresee things such as Brexit. Yeah. So but I, t I thought it interesting to see that uh, Michelle O'Neill even 
didn't want to get rid of that because, of course, they, they brought down Stormont themselves. Yeah, they? certainly. And, and she, too, will be cautious in terms, of, in terms of her approach because one thing we do forget about Northern Ireland, it is power-sharing uh, executive. And in fairness, the parties, all right, they've broken down on several occasions, but when they have to, they have worked with one another over mm. the past 20 or so years. Yes, which is remarkable. Which is remarkable yeah. given the dynamics of politics in the North. Absolutely. Let us move to uh, Ukraine and uh, the war there. And I suppose here's the big question you're posing it yourself on what terms could the fighting stop and what what terms could bring the fighting to an end? Though? Yeah, I've read a couple of interesting analytical pieces on this, you know, postulating or quietly suggesting will Ukraine become maybe something like post-World War II Finland. So Just forced, explain that to us. How, yeah, how would so that it would be up? forced to kind of cede a certain amount of its territory and remain neutral for the coming decades. Another, another theory is, might it resemble something closer to West Germany? Its national territory kind of partitioned by war and its democratic half absorbed into, into NATO like, like West Germany was. Now, it should, be, it should be noted, it should be acknowledged that all Western politicians and, of course, President Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine have been both unequivocal and unambiguous in saying that Ukraine, all of Ukraine's sovereign territory must be, uh, must be restored. And I would kind of share that view myself when you look at it, because, I mean, what message does it send out if you allow Vladimir Putin to just step in and take a, a swathe of territory for himself? But, of course, it is very difficult in practice and like the precise terms of any negotiated settlement here will be d- dictated to a large degree by what happens on the battlefield. Of course. And what about the losses so far, Thomas? I mean, what, what Yeah, so what there are, are various estimates. I mean, some say 100,000 soldiers in each side. Some, some estimate that it's more than that. Some estimate slightly, yes. But Ukraine, I suppose, has the upward momentum. Obviously, it recaptured the city of Kherson in the past week. It has also maintained support from its allies. So in November 4th, the Pentagon announced a major new arms package, $400 million in military aid, and that that included weaponry, new tanks, new drones. Another thing I was looking at, however, which I found very interesting, was public opinion in the country. So nearly 90% of Ukrainians say they want the country to keep fighting. So, you know, unambiguous support there. By contrast, in Russia only 36% want the country to press on with the war. 57% favour peace talks. Intriguingly, however, support for Vladimir Putin remains robust at 79%. Now, we have to take those statistics with a grain of salt. I was just going to say that because truth being the first casualty of war and all of that. Exactly. How how accurate can we... Well, independent polling in Russia, as you would imagine, very difficult to ascertain the specific, you know, the specific figures around it. But I mean, it does point to, it does point to, I mean, support for Vladimir Putin is strong, but we've had a lot of rumours suggesting that he may be under a little bit of pressure. And there is no doubt this war has been a disaster for Russia. You can't get around that fact. The question is, how long will they be willing to press on with it? and uh, what their long-term objectives are. Now, from the Western perspective, the long-term objectives are interesting. I mean, President Biden, at times he's floated with the notion of, of ousting Putin from power. On other occasions, he's spoken about devising kind of an off-ramp for the Russian president. So kind of mixed views 
among them. The leaders of the G7 industrialised countries, they've given their full support to Ukraine's independence. But it will be very, very interesting because in a broader international perspective, I mean, China seems to quietly disapprove of Russia's management of the war. You know, they've taken a very interesting position on this. Mm. Meanwhile, you have Vladimir Putin trying to kind of woo developing countries, poorer countries, in order to build a coalition of support for him. So he's kind of becoming increasingly desperate, it should be said. Yeah, it'll be interesting. But behind the scenes, are people coming up with scenarios of peace, if you know what I mean? Is there speculation or is there... I, I think that I think there there certainly is. And I think, you know, one would wonder whether America will try to maybe temper or limit Ukraine's ambitions when it comes to the war and when it comes to taking back all yes. their territory. I mean, I've no doubt the preference in the White House is for Ukraine to reclaim all their territory as as they should deserve as they deserve to. But there is increasing pressure. And I mean the US have done this before in other contexts, maybe in relation to Israel and that where they have put subtle pressure, you know, will they maybe withhold a certain amount of military aid? It is very, very interesting. I mean, it all yes, points to the fact that Ukraine's fate is probably not entirely within its own hands. It depends on... And when you talk about all of Ukrainian territory, are you talking about pre-2014? Are you talking about Crimea? Well, that is the aspiration and that is what most Western leaders have hinted, but that will be very, very difficult to achieve if some will say completely unrealistic. I couldn't see Putin. No, uh, no, and and I think being realistic, it is highly unlikely. I think it's everybody's preference, as I said, but in reality, it would be very, very hard to achieve. So, I think so you know, too, Putin's yeah. calculations are anyone's guess yeah, at this and, point. And, of course, we heard about that little skirmish between uh, Zelensky and uh, Biden as well, where, he, you know, Zelensky didn't seem grateful enough, according no, to No, yes, and I mean, yeah. those when those tensions start to emerge, it probably isn't, an, uh, isn't a great sign, yeah. you know, because it shows maybe fractures in, in, the, in the level of support and that... You know, the West is dealing with an energy crisis and, and those issues are really coming to bear Absol- at the moment. Absolutely. And and uh, that energy crisis, I suppose, due largely to what's happening in, exactly, in, in precisely. as well. Let's move to uh, Nigeria and uh, Peter Obi. Yes, yes. Now, I'm always attracted to these kind of charismatic, eccentric, eccentric figures in African yes. politics. They kind of... They have an allure to them. The difference with this guy, though, his name is Peter Obi, and he's a candidate to become Nigeria's next president. President. The difference with this guy, in contrast to maybe others we've previewed, this guy is in with a shot, and he's in with a very realistic shot. Now, it should be said, there is still a long way to go before the presidential election next year. But this Peter Obi, he's kind of a, a reformist candidate, which has emerged and captured the imaginations of young people. Now, just to go through it, Nigeria is actually Africa's most populous nation, so it has a population of 211 million. Wow. And, you know, I've, I've read various pieces saying it, it should really and truly be the wealthiest country as well. It has an abundance of natural resources, oil, gas, precious minerals, but it has been ravaged by corruption and inept, gover- inept governments and they've failed to capitalise on kind of the rich economic potential 
of the country. So, you know, that's a very familiar yeah. story. So what about this guy that he's wealthy himself? Yeah, he? uh, the difference, though, is he actually made his money before entering politics. So <laughs> in contrast to most uh, yes. most African politicians who siphon off their own, uh, their own money in, in kind of corrupt practices, this guy made his money before entering politics. And he is kind of... He has branded himself as a revolutionary. Like he's, he, he is, yeah, he's rich, but he's energetic and he's kind of inventive and he's perceived as a pragmatic and effective politician. He served two terms as governor as one, of one of Nigeria's biggest states. And by all accounts, he performed quite well. He ended with a fiscal surplus. He elevated their score on the Human Development Index and that measures kind of life expectancy, income, education levels. He also, interestingly, stood as a vice president back in 2019. Now, he was unsuccessful, but the point of the matter, the fact of the matter is he has a good track record and he also has relative youth on his side. He's only 61. Now, he's right. not he's not a astonishingly young, but the other candidates <laughs> Steady are... Steady now, Thomas. Steady. Yeah, indeed, indeed, indeed. Uh, the other candidates are past what in Ireland we might consider uh, retirement age. They're right. 70 and 75 respectively. And I, be, I suppose the key thing about Peter Obi is, as I've mentioned, he has become a champion of the young. He has captured the, the imaginations of yes. younger generations. But he, he's standing for the Labour Party. But I mean, what kind of Labour Party is it? Yeah. Is it a left, a left wing? Yeah. Or? And you see, it can be a little bit obscure when it comes to African politics. Right, okay. And, you know, this could this could act as an impediment on his path to power as well because the Labour Party isn't very, very popular. They're kind of a small electoral faction within Parliament. They don't belong to either of the two main party groups and partisan loyalty remains very entrenched in right. Nigeria. So politics yeah. is often conducted along ethnic or religious lines. And uh, even though they're very rich in terms of, you know, uh, natural resources and the like, I mean, it, it's very poor, isn't it? Just how poor is it? Yeah, they're... they're Forty uh, percent of the population surviving on less than one dollar ninety a day. So wow. that is, you know, incredibly poor. There is obviously entrenched poverty there across the cent- or across the country. Like what what crit- or what um, analysts have said about Peter Obi is he may represent kind of an opportunity for Nigeria to break free of the kind of stranglehold which they've been under and to capitalise on the rich economic potential. Now, as I've mentioned, there are a number of potential risks or potential obstacles in his path. One is those party loyalties, are those party loyalties. Another is religion. He is a Christian who hails from the south of the country, and that could undermine support for him in the north. The north is predominantly Muslim. And the third, the third risk to his electoral campaign, you guessed it, electoral rigging and general kind of malpractice, corruption, that remains very entrenched in Africa. And Nigeria has cleaned up its act to a certain extent, but there is no guarantee that the election will be free and fair. So that will be a concern for him. It's going to be interesting for sure. Um, in terms of what we should be watching out for this week, Thomas? Yeah, I caught, I caught eye at this story, the rift at the heart of the EU. It's an extraordinary story, really. Yeah. And I, I want listeners to pay attention maybe to the dynamic between the two most senior politicians in the European Union, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and European Council President Charles Michel. Now, they are the head of the EU's two most powerful institutions, but it appears that their relationship has almost broken down entirely. A serious fracture has emerged 
in their relationship, they're supposed to stand side by side. But yeah, as I said, their relationship is completely fractured uh, to the extent that they even do their utmost to avoid each other, if right. at all possible. And why? What's behind this? Well, if we remember back, and some will recall the infamous sofa gate yeah. incident, whereby Charles Michel and Ursula von der Leyen were meeting Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Now, Michel sat in a chair and von der Leyen was denied an opportunity to sit down. And it was apparently, the most uncomfortable piece of video. Oh, it, it, was, yeah. it was incredibly mm. awkward to watch. It was incredibly uncomfortable. And apparently these tensions have emerged from that. But it is kind of a worrying development because, I mean, when you have these two politicians, they're at the heart of power in the European Union and they're hardly on speaking terms. I mean, that is a cause for concern, surely. Isn't it just uh, indeed? Um, cracking down on big tech, of course, the uh, European Digital Services Act. So what should we look out for there, Thomas? Yeah, just, to, just to, to note this, because I think it will have an impact on people's day-to-day lives. The European Digital Services Act entered into force last week. And what that is, is essentially a new law which obliges social media companies to apply proper regulatory measures, proper regulations to their platforms. So it limits the illegal dissemination of content, it limits hate speech, pornography, terrorist videos. It also affects online advertising. So listeners will will be influenced by this. Their day-to-day affairs on social media, most of us are now members of social media and they may notice subtle changes. They may notice kind of a, a moderation in content on the platform. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Just about out of time, but can we give a quick mention to uh, Qatar? Because uh, yesterday, there's glee almost right across the newspapers today at the fact that Qatar lost out to Ecuador. Wasn't we, it? we certainly, yeah. And yeah. I mean, you spoke about it earlier in the yeah. show how the politics has kind of overshadowed the football. Completely. Now, Completely I'm a big football absolutely. fan. I'm looking forward to the games today and that. And, and I will still watch it, but perhaps reluctantly so. Yeah. Uh, and there is no doubt that these human rights issues and the LGBT issues will continue to fester for as long as this tournament plays out. That address by the FIFA president was... A remarkable address last week. A remarkable (laughs) address in in the past couple of days. And it'll be interesting to see how the tournament plays out. My guess is Brazil will win it. Uh, Lula da Silva will be will be will be happy if that's the case. Yeah. But it'll be very interesting. England playing today, so that's most eyes will uh, will be on that game. And of course, huge support, needless to say, from Ireland for England. Oh, I would imagine so. <laughs> Why not? That was great to see. Amongst you. the DUP, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Thomas. Thank you. Thank that's uh, Thomas Conway, as usual, with us on a Monday with our look across the globe. Uh, news and information is on the way. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie